This video is brought to you by Blessed Be God Boutique, maker of Catholic fashionable apparel, handmade accessories, and more. About a month from the time that I'm recording this, the first meeting in Rome for the Synod of Synodality came to a conclusion, and it issued a document calling for greater participation by the laity in governing the church. This is a naked decentralization scheme for the church. Various participants of the Synod called for the explicit decentralization of the church and the placing of interpretive authority on matters of doctrine into the hands of the laity. This would be to combat the great scourge of clericalism in the church today. So, now we're going to go over one of the more eerie warnings from Father Malachi Martin. He warned us about the Synod on Synodality. Not explicitly. His writings make no mention explicitly about such a synod, but he does warn us about the great influence of the core value set of the synod, a heresy called liberation theology. And he demonstrates in two works of his that liberation theology is central to what we're dealing with in the church today in synod. This video will be based on two of Father Malachi Martin's works. His novel, or his book, rather, The Jesuits, and the other great nonfiction work of his, The Keys of This Blood both of which are focused on the present state of the Catholic Church and how it came to be in such dire straits. Father Malachi Martin explored the concept of decentralization of hierarchical power and giving decision-making power in the Church into the hands of laity, and provides us with this example, which comes from the book The Jesuits. One idea that comes from liberation theology is the concept of a listening Church, and the liberation theologians want to destroy the distinction between the laity and the clergy, by imposing this silly concept of a listening church onto the Catholic Church. But you'll find the concept isn't as silly as its name implies. Quote, A summarily weak but activist theologian falls easily into this trap. For such a man, for example, as Archbishop Rembert Weakland of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, activist in liberal and progressive political causes and chairman of the drafting committee for the first draft of the U.S. Bishop's ill-fated economic pastoral letter of 1984, which says in part, quote, the U.S. Conference of Bishops believes that the hierarchy must listen to what the Spirit is saying to the whole church. Discernment, not just innovation or self-reliance, becomes a part of the teaching process. Weakland is not alone, nor is he without precedent. A prominent churchman of the stature of Cardinal Koenig of Vienna became almost foolishly confused on this subject in 1976. Quote, the old distinctions between the teaching church and the listening church, between the church that commands and the church that obeys, have ceased to exist. He was quoted as saying, Priests and laity form but one organic unity. End quote. Synodality has its roots in liberation theology. As the above quote from the Jesuit says, the focus of synodality is a listening church. Father Malachi Martin continues on this thread in the Jesuits where he explains, quote, It was a dream come true a dream put into words by the same Father Boff. The sacred power must be put back in the hands of the people. No teaching or directing authority would be allowed from above, from the alien hierarchic church. In fact, the very symbols of that church must be firmly rejected. Symbols and all else must only come from below, from the people, from their base communities, nearly 1,000 of them in Nicaragua alone, in time, and in nearly 300,000 in Latin America at large. The idea of base communities spread to the United States, where they are sometimes called gatherings, end quote. This is radical decentralization of the church. And it all does sound kind of familiar, doesn't it? I mean, it should. That was the rallying cry of the synodality and the synod on synodality. 
Now, remember, at the start of the most recent phase of the Synod in Rome, Francis had the participants handed a copy of the Pact of the Catacombs, which was the initial declaration of first only a relative handful of bishops in the 1960s, declaring themselves for liberation theology and their plan to impose it on the church for a church of the poor, as if the Catholic Church doesn't know a thing about helping the poor, and the rest of it. That relative handful of signers initially of that pact grew later to 500 signees among the bishops. It's more than 10% by current numbers. Malachi Martin now goes on to describe how Paul VI lost control of the Jesuits in the 1970s in the aftermath of this, especially in Nicaragua, as they got themselves firmly allied with activists aligned with the hammer and sickle ideology, and engaged in activity meant to topple the existing social order of the time. This is critical to our understanding of things. The former Franciscan priest Leonardo Boff argued in the 1960s and 1970s that the church must put the power, quote, back into the hands of the laity, invoking some ancient myth that the church was once run by laity. Boff, who later left Catholicism, accused the church of being overly hierarchical and having detached itself from the people. If that sounds familiar, it should. That's essentially the charge of rigid clericalism that we hear so often today. Boff's influence in this is critically important. Before we get back to the work of Malachi Martin, Boff is today welcomed in Rome, despite having not only left the priesthood and the Franciscan order, but also Catholicism itself. One liberation theologian author describes Boff's theology like this, quote, For Boff, the church is the sacrament of the Holy Spirit, and since the Spirit is given to all the people of God, one could ask what organizational or jurisdictional structures function best for releasing the Spirit's gifts on behalf of the reign of God. After extensive study of more Eurocentric theological traditions, Boff dared to suggest a new model of church governance. In his model, charism, which is spirit gift, is the organizing principle, rather than the monarchical structures we now have. He points to St. Paul, who saw charism as a concrete function or service that each Christian exercised on behalf of everyone in the community. See 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Romans chapter 12, verse 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. For Paul, there are no non-charismatic Christians. Everyone has an important place, and each of us is called to serve the community. See Romans chapter 12, verse 5. As a side note, the author making this claim is, of course, a charismatic Christian. Anyway, Boff observes, This model of Christian life is very different from the one in which the hierarchy takes all sacred power and all the means of religious production, saying, in effect, you will listen obey, and ask no questions, and do as we say. In Boff's model, the hierarchy is just one charismatic state in the church, and it must not suffocate the other charisms raised up by the Spirit. Further, the function of hierarchy is to, quote, make way for unity and harmony among the various services, or charisms, exercised by the faithful. It is not a leap to say that in this model, leaders, meaning priests, deacons, and bishops, would be selected based on who has the gifts of the office, not on the basis of the flesh or the power of power, end quote. Note there the use of terms like means of production of, of faith, okay? Now, Boff was later silenced by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, but Boff is now taken very seriously in Rome. Liberation theology is essentially humanist in its orientation. That is, it is materialistic. By definition, it is concerned with the earthly state and condition of man on issues related to justice, fraternity, economics, and of course, above all, it is concerned with power. John Paul II in 1984 pushed back hard against liberation theology, exhorting the liberation theologians to anchor their humanism in what he called an authentic humanism, which is anchored in Christ and focused on eternal questions. 
One liberation theologian, Juan Segundo, called John Paul II's response an attack on humanism and on the advances made on human dignity by the secular world and an attempt to return the church to being focused on eternal things. What an accusation. We can only hope that's true. <laughs> Malachi Martin had, did have a lot to say about this in the Jesuits, by the way. Quote, Segundo's arrogant warning to the Holy Father is not subtle. It is, in fact, emblazoned in the subtitle to his book, a response to Cardinal Ratzinger and a warning to the Church. Segundo, in his book, gets quickly enough to the heart of the papal threat. This Pope, he says, in effect, has criticized us, the liberation theologians, but his criticism is ignorant and unjust. The Pope doesn't understand either liberation theology or the Marxism of which we stand accused. But do not be distracted by this feud over liberation theology, Segundo continues. The real aim of this pope is to change the whole of Vatican II theology. Here, says Segundo, is the pope's hidden agenda, his real and underhanded purpose, to set the church back into pre-Vatican II molds, and thus to betray the true teaching of Christ's church, as Vatican II taught it to us. The meat of Segundo's argument is straight out of the modernist book. Until Vatican II, Rome or the Vatican or the hierarchical church, or Segundo, the terms are interchangeable, taught Catholicism on the basis of a two-worlds theory, the spiritual world and the material world. As Segundo sees it, the church encouraged religious fervor and practice for the spiritual world, but decried any immersion in the material world. The result was that the church did nothing to help men and women in their material problems. It concentrated on, per, on personal sins and personal salvation, never on social sins and social salvation. Anyone who engaged in that sort of activity was said to have become, quote, secularized, a very dirty word, as Segundo sees it, in the pre-Vatican II church. Unfortunately for John Paul II, Segundo's argument is not only well thought out, witted, knowledgeable, and appealingly democratic, it is also based in part and however erroneously, on the explicit words of Paul VI. For it was, says Segundo, under Paul VI that Vatican II changed that prior so-called spiritual outlook of the Church, and it was Paul VI who said that the Council had abandoned the, quote, two-worlds theory, that the Church now looked instead on man as one integrated being, needing material as well as spiritual salvation and liberation. The Church, says Segundo, offered itself to the world as a participant and co-worker in achieving that integrated liberation. And he quotes the speech with which Paul VI closed Vatican II on December 7, 1965, and which was such an inspiration for the Jesuits of the general chapter number 31 and beyond, quoting them, will it not be said that the thought of the church in the council has deviated towards the anthropocentric positions of modern culture? To which Paul VI gave the answer, deviated, not turned, yes. Religion, Paul explained, is completely at the service of man's good, because the church wants man's spiritual good. It will labor equally for his material good, for his liberation from poverty and economic servitude and political domination. The point for Segundo is that the popular church, or the people's church, as is distinct from the hierarchic church of Rome, has arisen out of modern culture precisely on the basis of this unitary view of man. This, he declares, is now basic church doctrine, accepted Catholic theology. It is in this people's church that the true teaching authority of Christ now arises, and is found and is to be consulted. Let the 
people's church beware. Segundo's warning rings loud and clear that this pope, John Paul II, is endeavoring now to change the theology of Vatican II in order to suit his personal and partisan outlook. And let Cardinal Ratzinger and Pope John Paul II beware, Segundo is saying further, not to sin against the voice of this new, true, quote, teaching authority of the Church of Christ, end quote. This listening church represents a new revelation. Remember that, and note something here. This listening church of the poor that puts power in the hands of the people is rooted in Vatican II. It always is. It's rooted in the words of Paul VI. And it's according to the most radical proponents of decentralization schemes, and they bring the evidence for it. They get their evidence from the council through their own particular peculiar interpretive lens. And that should also sound familiar. But by themselves, a veritable army of liberation theologians couldn't accomplish anything except for one important thing, one critically important thing. The influencing of bishops and especially cardinals in their thinking. Now, this is where the infamous Pact of the Catacombs comes back into our story. The Pact of the Catacombs was pushed by various South American bishops and their European allies for imposing a real deep, quote, reform on the church to make sure that the church could only ever be dedicated in the future to material concerns and secular ideologies. Chief among these concerns were the various issues that, when embraced by the church, turns the church into a weird NGO, one with sacraments. This influence is critical in one other way. The bishops can't accomplish even that much by themselves. They need a pope to do their work for them. And the one thing cardinals can do is organize for and elect a Roman pontiff of like mind, which is what Cardinal Daniil said about the conclave that elected Francis. And this is where we return to Father Malachi Martin. Seeing his work, The Keys of This Blood, Father Martin provides this warning. Quote, there is one other possible development within the Roman Catholic body that, if unchecked, could shatter its unity of structure. Briefly, this is the conclave election of a papal candidate whose policy would be to dissolve the unity and change the structure of the Roman Catholic Church by simply abandoning the exercise of the Petrine office and privilege on which the structural unity of the Church is built as a visible body, and by disassociating the approximately 4,000 bishops of the Church from their collegial submission to the papacy, the principle in which they have been, up to now, structured. All this would mean a new function for the Bishop of Rome, and not the traditional one. It would also entail a new relationship of all bishops, including the Bishop of Rome, to each other. If anyone doubts seriously that such an eventuality could come about, let him remember that no one would have seriously speculated during the 40s and 50s that a pope in the 60s would attempt to do away effectively with the elements that guaranteed the central happening of the Roman Mass, namely the reenactment or the representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. Yet that, according to reliable sources, is precisely what happened. There is a second reason why no one should consider far-fetched the third possibility outlined above, a serious consideration of the present situation with dispassionate eyes very quickly reveals the grim fact of Roman Catholic life today. On the universal level of parish and diocese, and on the superior level of papacy and papal ministry, we will find present all the dispos dispositive elements required and sufficient to bring this dire development to fruition. Indeed, we will find these elements have already been working intensively and extensively. On the level of parish and diocese, and rife among bishops, priests, nuns, and laypeople, 
we will find an unshakable persuasion that before the Second Vatican Council there was one Roman Catholic Church, the Pre-Conciliar Church, but that since that council, the Pre-Conciliar Church, has ceased to exist, and its place has been taken by the Conciliar Church, animated by the spirit of Vatican II, and no longer called the Roman Catholic Church, but instead called either, in the biblical words, the people of God, or simply, vaguely, the Church. As a side note, or now we hear the term synodal church, or world church. We will find that the two churches are radically different in the minds of bishop, priest, nun, and layperson, different on four capital points. The conciliar church lays no claim to exclusive possession of the means of eternal salvation. Non-Catholics as such, and non-Christians as such, can make equal claims to have the means of salvation within their own religion, or way of life, if they happen to be religionless. For all of us, Catholics, non-Catholics, and non-Christians are just pilgrims to the same goal, although approaching it by different roads. Second, in the conciliar church, the sources of religious enlightenment, guidance, and authority is the local community of faith. Correct beliefs and correct moral practice no longer come from a hierarchic body of bishops submissive to the central teaching authority of one man, the Bishop of Rome. Third, the worldwide cluster of communities of faith have as their prime function to cooperate with mankind in building and assuring the success of world peace and world reform in the use of Earth's resources so as to eliminate economic oppression and political imperialism. Fourth, the former Roman Catholic Church rules of moral behavior about every kind of issue of the flesh must be brought into fraternal alignment with the outlook desires, and practices of the world at large. Otherwise, how can members of the church claim to have opened up to their human brothers and sisters? End quote. Again, does that sound familiar? Our woes today are rooted in liberation theology, one of the driving forces of neo-modernism, which became highly influential, if not totally dominant, in South America. That ideology clearly influenced many bishops as well, including Jorge Bergoglio, who to this day maintains friendship with the former Franciscan priest, Leonardo Boff. He shows up at the Vatican periodically and meets with him. Remember something here as we return to Father Malachi Martin for this final moment. The Synodal Ape Church is concerned first and foremost with power, who has it, who has the ability to use it, and for what it is used. The final document from the most recent phase of the Synod of Sin explicitly called for the decentralization of the Church, with power over doctrine itself placed into the hands of laity, or at least for laity to be heavily involved in the process of determining what doctrine is. Here, Father Malachi Martin reminds us of John Paul II's mentor, Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski, and his concern with liberation theology and its focus on Church governance. Quote, What had always been disturbing for Wyszynski was the peculiarity that the anti-church partisans insisted on remaining within the Roman Catholic governing system. They worked to alter that system profoundly. They never called themselves anything but Roman Catholic and never left the church in open apostasy, schism, or heresy. They insisted they were Roman Catholic and that the new ecclesiology, the people of God idea, was the truly Roman Catholic idea. They constantly undermined the persuasion that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, had any special overriding authority over the other bishops of the Church. Rather, the Bishop of Rome must behave like any other Bishop of the Church, 
be subject to the votes of the other bishops and the laity. Any notion of a special Petrine office, of the Petrine keys of authority, must be relinquished as outmoded and contradictory and irreconcilable with the democratization of religion and the Bill of Human Rights, for that ancient papacy was the one obstacle blocking, quote, the people of God in the Catholic Church from joining all the people of God throughout all the other religions, thus to achieve the full human unity of the people of God. Likewise, the old distinctions between priest and laity, between the teaching church, the clergy from pope to priest, and the learning church, the laity, had to go. One triumph of the anti-church was registered as the Second Vatican Council. The bishops present at the council had deliberately chosen to describe the Roman Catholic Church as the people of God. In the official text they approved as their joint statements, they referred to the church 18 times as the kingdom of God, but 80 times they called the church the people of God. The bishops may not have understood the implications of what they were doing, but Protestant observers did. Quoting them, This image means that an ecclesial function is assigned to the laity, Peter Meinhold wrote. Many of the old distinctions between clergy and layfolk will now disappear. Franz Cardinal Koenig of Vienna put it even more explicitly, quote, The old distinctions between the teaching church, the official personnel, and the listening church, the laity, between the church that commands and the church that obeys, have ceased to exist. It is the laymen who directly represent the Lord Christ vis-a-vis -vis the world. End quote. Again, that should sound familiar. We're told that the laity must be involved in the decision-making of the church, and that clericalism is the great enemy of the church. Clericalism, for our purposes, can be defined in the way Francis probably means it, as the recognition that the clergy have special authority, special power, and yes, special rights along with duties, and the church that laymen simply don't have, and as a consequence can and should be treated differently than the laity. That definition doesn't make some people terribly happy, especially those liberation theologians, but it is the reality of how the church understood things. The church has always been hierarchical in nature since its founding. This hierarchical nature has been the target of the modernists for a century at least, as they know that the laity are easily influenced and could be manipulated into changing doctrines and even dogmas of the faith. This decentralization scheme is anything but Catholic, and they've been open about working towards decentralizing the church for a century, but really the last 50 years since they came to power in the 1950s and 1960s. So I have to ask at the end, what do you think about this? Do you think Malachi Martin knew what the modernists were up to even back in the 1980s? I do, and this sounds this all sounded very eerie when I was going over this. Again, what two work these two works for the books are primarily his book The Jesuits and The Keys of This Blood, both of which are nonfiction works that explore aspects of the infiltration of and crisis in the church. Both are still in print, both are available on Amazon and various other websites. Father Martin is explicit in his works that this is an attempt by the diabolical forces to destroy the Church of Christ and replace it with something secular in nature. But I'm curious what you think about this, so let me know in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't, it does help. So does sharing this on social media. That helps too. And as always, pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.